1: It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps.
0: Monster House presents.
2: Monster Talk can be supported by listeners like you at patreon.com forward slash monster talk or by leaving positive reviews on iTunes and other podcasting sites. Learn more at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Thanks to all of you who are supporting us in this way. We are humbled and grateful and hope that we always live up to or exceed your expectations. A small band of men on a perilous search for the man beast of Tibet. The abominable snowman of the Himalayas. You've heard of him, haven't you? The world's most shocking monster. No one's ever lived who's seen him be on your guard. He's coming to this theater. The abominable snowman dares you. We dare you, dare you to see the abominable snowman of the Himalayas. What did it look like? Tell me, what did you see, Kusang? Tell me! I see, I see
0: what what men must not see.
2: Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith.
0: And I'm Karen Stoltzner.
2: In the introduction, we heard a clip from the theatrical trailer for the 1957 Hammer film, The Abominable Snowman of the Himalayas. This was one of the first fictional stories about these mysterious creatures of remote mountainous Asia to make a big cultural splash in the West. Stories had been coming out of this region for a while as part of a stream of stories that accompanied various attempts to climb Mount Everest. Horror writer H.P. Lovecraft picked up the word Migu, or Migo, and used it in his story, The Whisperer in Darkness, in 1930. Authors Daniel Loxton and Don Prothero discussed the growth of Yeti stories in their book, Abominable Science, and they conclude that there was a direct relationship between Yeti stories and climbing expeditions seeking funding from newspapers back in Europe perhaps best exemplified, in the 1954 Daily Mail-sponsored expedition to find the Yeti, which included an assortment of adventurers, scientists, and more than 350 porters to carry all their gear. We'll be digging further into the history of the Yeti and cryptozoology in upcoming episodes, where we'll take a look at millionaire Tom Slick and how his search for the Yeti and Bigfoot helped cement the shape of cryptozoology for decades to come. But outside the debate about whether these animals are real or imaginary, whether they're ape-like or bear-like, or whether they're natural or supernatural, there's the question of what was the Yeti before the arrival of mountain climbers and cryptozoology researchers? For this episode, we're excited to bring back Eric Mortensen to talk about his research into stories of the Yeti, which he obtained through fieldwork directly in the regions where these stories originate. I think you're going to be amazed that you've never heard these kind of stories before. And as you hear them, I hope you'll think about what these stories tell us about the creatures at the heart of them. Do these animals sound like bears? Do they sound like apes? Or do they sound more like fairies and gin? Whatever Yeti are, fascinating elements of their folklore are not making it into the cryptozoology books and documentaries. So get ready to climb high into the mountains, Searching for magic villages and mysterious animals because this episode's all about the monster dog. Hey, listeners, we're welcoming back Eric Mortensen, who last talked with us about dragons. And my gosh, that's been a couple of years back now. Um, Eric is now the John A. von Wiesenflug professor in the Department of Religious Studies and Ethics at Guilford College in Greensboro, North Carolina, which that sounds even better than what you were before. So that's cool. Congratulations, yeah. or in order. Promotion. My- <laughs> good to have you back. It is good to have you back.
1: Nice to be back. It's been a few years, and we've had this interesting time period in between, haven't we? Yes.
2: Sure, yes. Yeah. I, What's I, happened? I, that whole may you live in interesting times curse keeps coming back. I don't know if that's a real legit curse, but it certainly seems ominous. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Or monstrous even yes, yeah
2: <laughs> well, the last time we had you on, I was inspired to invite you on because of a hallway conversation we had about dragons, but you gave a presentation, um
0: and where was that again because that just sounds strange, saying a hallway conversation <laughs> it was it a department store or something yeah, well, it was
2: <laughs> it was a religious studies department store uh. <laughs> This was the Of Gods and Monsters Conference held at Texas State University in San Marcos, put on by friends of the show, Joe Laycock and Natasha Michaels, through the Religious Studies Department. What a hoot. I really enjoyed uh, going to that and and, uh, participating. And Eric gave a wonderful talk about Yeti, and it reminded me of, despite a a lifelong interest in monsters and cryptozoology, uh, how little I actually knew about how the Yeti is recognized and perceived on the ground in these countries where the stories of yeti originate you know the stories we typically hear in monster world are you know european explorers go looking for the yeti the abominable snowman Mm -hmm. the migo like there's all these names for it that there's this disparity between sort of the way these creatures are looked at in, in in monster studies versus how they are on the ground and uh You gave several examples of that. so But I was hoping maybe we could just start out by talking about what is the Yeti in the local cultures there and where are we talking about? Maybe that's also a good thing to point out.
1: The idea of a Bigfoot-like, Sasquatch-like creature in East Asia, in the Himalayas, is widespread and there are... Countless tales of yeren in China, which is just wild, wild people, um, and also in Tibet, in the Himalayas in general. And there, in Tibetan language, it's called migu or negu, depending on the dialect. So, or the Tibetic language that you're talking about. So, the place where I do my research most deeply is a place called Giltang, which is in southeastern Tibet, which today is. In Northwestern Yunnan Province, just east of northern Myanmar. so Southeastern Tibet. But across the Tibetan Plateau, there are tales of what are called Nanigu or Namigu. And Nanigu uh, means forest wild person, and it's basically the parallel to what we think of as as Bigfoot. And they're very similar to the Chinese stories as well. But it's far broader than just there. So across Eurasia, you're going to find these stories. It's it's a very widespread phenomena of tale type in a way.
0: And what about the Abominable Snowman? Is that just the kind of Western yeah. society version?
1: Yeah, basically, what was that old
2: Rudolph movie, right? We're talking here about the 1964 stop-motion animated feature, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, which in the days before VHS, DVD, or streaming, would be played each year in December, introducing yet another generation of kids to the idea that the Abominable Snowman, or, as they called it, the Abominable Snow Monster, or just the Bumble, was a giant white-haired monster of the frozen north. And the popularity of this visualization has influenced how artists draw these creatures ever since, even though most of the real-world reports don't feature white fur.
1: The Bumble, I love the Bumble. I was terrified of that as a child. Like, really terrified of that thing as a child.
0: Didn't I ever tell you about Bumbles? Bumbles, bounce!
1: <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> the idea of a Yeti is a, it's a Sherpa version of the story. And the Sherpa people live in the Solukumbu region of northern, northeastern Nepal just on the south side of the high Himals, south of Tibet. And the Sherpa people are a community that migrated to where they are now, hundreds of years ago, maybe four, 500 years ago, from eastern Tibet. So the proximity between the area where I do my work and the original homeland of the Sherpa people is it's quite close. So it's no surprise, really, that you'll find overlaps and parallels and variants of the same story, but in the nepalese sherpa versions of them it's more of a snow glacier ice high snow mountain creature and where i do my research it's a forest creature but they're very very similar
2: that is so interesting it's the same name or well it, it's a variety of names but they seem to be describing different things like you say it's a snow creature or a forest creature but also wild person or barbarian i've heard some people describe it as like an outsider so, like, it's the same kind of language. How do you know whether people are talking about it one or the other when you hear these stories? Oh, that's a good, good question. It, you always ask good questions.
1: Thanks! <laughs> it's the best answer there is the content, right? You look at the content of the stories and you find thematic overlaps, sometimes almost the exact same story told in a different locale. Um, with different landscape markers inside the story, but the narrative structure is exactly the same. The moral of the story would be the same. So there are variants of these stories, and they do morph as, you know, the morphology of folklore is very real. So you're going to see some story types that exist in one area and not another, which doing sort of proto-folkloristics or folklore diffusionary morphological studies, we can sort of try to find... a a locus of where this story might be most told or have something closer to an origin. Although my suspicion is these stories are age old, you know, perhaps thousands and thousands of years old and their origins. And it's sort of a silly question to try to find the origins of these stories. But we do have patterns of them for sure.
0: Eric, you're making me think of a local set of uh, restaurants here in Colorado called the Yak and Yeti. It's a yeah. Nepalese restaurant.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly, the Yak and Yetis. A, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yes, there's,
0: there's a number of them. Yeah, there's a Disney one too. Um, they're I think all around the world really. I think there was one in Australia when I was growing up. Uh, anyway, we were hoping that you might share some Yeti stories with us if you can.
1: I would be happy to, although I won't be telling you mostly Yeti stories as much as I'll be telling you Nanigu stories, because. First of all, they're less known. We know more about yeti stories because of the, as you mentioned, the sort of colonial fascination, and part of that gets caught up in the exotification of Tibet, the mystification of the high Himalayas, and the romanticization, and basically Orientalism. Uh, the people right. paint onto you know the Buddhistic mountain um, world, and so of course you have people like Shipton and people like this who are out there trying to either take photographs of yeti footprints and cause a sensation or people looking for yeti scalps and things like this and there's been a lot of publication of this material and but there's been very little study in published form of the migu, the negu this nanigu, the forest wild person of the rest of the Tibetan plateau which blends more deeply into sort of the traditions of China as well where they have their own stories so it's very hard to trace, again, the center of where these stories come from, but we do know where they are told now. And these Nanigu stories vary, but there are several that are better known than others. The most famous, I think, or the most widespread and, and most told story of a Nanegu goes something like this. There's a village, and it's a beautiful village. It's bucolic, pastoral, perfect. There's clean water running through it and perfect places to farm. But you can't live there because the Nanegu, who live in the mountain crags above the tree line, looking down on the village, make it uninhabitable. What they do is they mimic what humans do during the day. They do at night. They come down and, for example, they watch farmers Planting barley. They watch the farmers putting the barley to dry on the drying racks. And the nanegu at night come down and they flip everything upside down. They dismantle the barley racks. They turn the barley plantings upside down and making it destroying the crops, making it uninhabitable to live there. So the people decide that they're going to sort of fight back against these nanegu. The nanegu are described as big, maybe eight, nine, 12 feet tall. They look like a combination of uh, something like a human and a gorilla, and they have hair that is brushed on the top half of the body. The hair is brushed or grows upward, and on the lower half of the body, the hair grows downward. Sometimes they're two-tone as well, but they're often gray or ruddy or brown or black, and they're fierce-looking, but they're not evil, It's not so much that nanegu are mean. It's more that they're curious. They want to be human. They want to be like humans. So they mimic humans, but they invert while they mimic. And a lot of these stories have to do with concepts of transgression and inversion. So the nanegu come down at night and they do this. And so the humans decide to trick the nanegu. And the humans bring out a big vat of water and take some wooden swords and very visibly drink from the vat of water and fight each other with wooden swords. But before Mm -hmm. they go to sleep, they replace the water with hard alcohol and replace their wooden swords with real blades. And at night, of course, the nanegu come down and drink the alcohol and get completely plastered and pick up the real swords and kill each other. Wow. And which... (laughs) Is sometimes used as an explanation for why there are no more Naniku. Sometimes they say that not all of them died, and some still live in the mountains around. So that's the one of the main tale tale types, I suppose would be one way of putting it. The um, one thematic content common story. There are many others, though. And one that I particularly love and is told in many variants and versions, but is of a hunter who goes. Into the forest. And these forests can be dark in their understories. And the people who live in this area describe being frightened as children when they had to walk alone through the forest, even in the middle of the day, because it was dark and kind of spooky because they knew there were nanegu there. And so the hunter is either out collecting mushrooms or hunting animals. And he comes across a nanegu, and the nanegu captures him. Now, why does the Nanegu capture him? Well, probably to eat him, but it's not clear. But something bad might happen. Nanegu don't look directly at a human face. That's a mystery. Um, when I talk to a lot of the storytellers here, they have different explanations for why Nanegu don't, can't look a human in the face. Part of it has to do with sort of a shy fear. Part of it has to do with they think that humans have a particular glow, like a soul glow that comes from them. So the Nanegu will hold their captive and look away over their own shoulders so they don't have to look the human in the face. Meanwhile, the human can then slip away. What they do is they use like um, prayer beads, like a mala, and they make sure the Nanegu is holding on to the prayer beads and they slip, or a bracelet, and they slip out from their bracelet or prayer beads and leave those with the Nanegu and escape. In another version of this story, there's a hunter who plays a flute and is sitting on a log playing the flute. And the Nanegu comes and sits down in front of him then looks at him. And the man in surprise drops his flute and the Nanegu picks it up and hands it back to him. So he plays it again and drops it. And the Nanegu picks it up and gives it back to him. So the man plays and intentionally drops his flute over a cliff. So the Nanegu runs down to get the flute and the hunter makes a break for it, but stops and quickly takes off of his clothes Puts his hat on a stump and clothes the stump with his clothing and hides. And the Nanegu, upset that his captive has disappeared, takes its chendo in Tibetan, which is its armpit stone. They have these armpit stones, which we can get to this later. And it takes its armpit stone and it throws it like a lightning bolt and explodes the stump with the man's clothes. But the man does survive and goes home. And I also think this makes for a very interesting excuse when the man shows up um, with no clothes really late at night.
2: He's like, what happened to your clothes? I don't know. I'm stumped. Yeah. <laughs> <good luck>. <laughs> <laughs> or the hunter shows up and
1: he's got um, um, the Nanego wants to do everything he does. So the man smokes a pipe and the Nanego wants to smoke a pipe. So the man pretends to smoke the end of his rifle. Whoa! Oh. And then the Nanegu takes the rifle and puts it in his mouth, and the hunter lights the fuse. And, of course, this is told to much laughter, and, of course, the Nanyagut is destroyed. So they're, they're not very wise. They don't know what they're supposed to do, but they want to be like people. So as a concept, this notion of the wild, that which is not us, it's the sort of the boundary of what it means to be human. These creatures that are described as kind of human, they can capture humans and have babies with them. And that, those are a whole bunch of other stories. But um, yeah, so the, it's this notion of the other that's almost us, that's mischievous but not malicious, sometimes very dangerous but foolish, a little bit like troll stories are in,
0: mm. in the, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So many follow-up questions to the stories you've just told us, which are fascinating. I'm wondering if these are existing beliefs, or if these are stories which are primarily told to children, or how are they perceived by people today?
1: That's a fantastic question. It's good, good questions. Yeah, I wondered the same things very much in trying to find out the answers to these in my field work and you get different answers from different people. But in essence, one of the big surprises for me was that there really are not so much cautionary tales. I, I sort of assumed they were told to children like, this is why you shouldn't go above the tree line, particularly at night. You know, something like that. But the audience of these tales is not, certainly not just children, although they're often there for the telling of stories. This telling of these stories is a large group event. There's often multiple tellers at the same time talking over each other. Everyone's chiming in, and the kids are making fun of the grandparents for, like, talking nonsense. But the middle-aged folks are listening intently and nodding in agreement. There are people who have seen them. I've met people and interviewed people who have seen Nanegu, who have experienced them firsthand. The word belief is tricky. Oh, yeah. (laughs)
0: Um, Yeah. Yeah.
1: I know, actually, when we spoke about dragons a few years ago, we talked a bit about this as well. There's this idea of, you know, whether or not the question of their reality is what's important here. It's the importance of the telling of the story that seems to matter most. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one way of approaching it would be to look at sort of a functionalist storytelling style. Like, why are these stories told? Are they just entertainment and on the functionalist level, there does seem to be a very strong correlation between the telling of these stories and the mapping of who we are as a community to the local landscape. So they're identity formative. They're, in a sense, one way to think about it, it's their world making stories. They're an iterative act of creating the landscape and its explanation. So, there are some functions like that to the storytelling, but whether or not they're believed, there's certainly skepticism, particularly in the remnants of a Marxist China. There are those who adamantly think these are nonsense, but then again, there's someone sitting in the room who's seen one. There seems to be a sense that the Nanegu are disappearing, that there used to be a lot of them, and now they're very rare. Or they don't live here in this valley anymore, but there are plenty of them over there in that valley. Things like this. So there's a wondering. Some people think that they're biological animals that are out there, or a lost primate, or a different kind of hominid, or something like that. And there's others who think of them more like magical monsters, who represent more strongly the notion of things like transgression and inversion. So the storytellers themselves know that the story value is about those things more than the reality of the monster per se.
2: One of the questions I wanted to talk about was this difference between the natural creature and the supernatural creature, you know, the things you describe the stone in the armpit. uh, There's various things that I've heard in some of these stories that seem magical to me, but I don't know if that's how they're perceived locally. You
1: know. They are. They are. People. People locally will definitely laugh when they're hearing these stories, as if this is silly, or they'll they'll think that it's sort of fantastical. And they are told inside of a corpus of other folk stories about other monsters that are far more implausible. So you'll find stories of the people who have no chin, who have their. I'm trying to do it right now, where you sort of stick your head down with your chin buried into your chest. These creatures are horrifyingly dangerous and cannibalistic and will eat people. And um, so this is one of the reasons that people build their houses up high, because these creatures can't look up.
2: But, they, but they, those creatures do have... Um...
1: The the ego tales are told alongside stories of even more fantastical creatures. So there's a sense that they fit into a genre of the fantastic monstrous. Not always. Sometimes they're told by grandma who met one, right? And so it's, it's complex. It's not an easy, simplistic answer, nor does everyone agree with you, one another about their, their reality or whether or not there really are non around or that there used to be non around. But I've definitely interviewed quite a few people who have met them.
2: So maybe this is a better way to ask. Do they fit into Buddhism, obviously they fit into folklore and myth whether it's literally believed or not i mean myth in the sense of these are shared cultural stories but is there a religious component to it? i know that they do show They're up in
0: hindu as well yeah
2: yeah i know they showed up in like certain chinese medicine texts that sort of thing is useful body parts you know the spleen of vieti or whatever they, <laughs> but I, I was just curious as to whether they are uh this is part of my ignorance here, though I don't know enough about Buddhism. I just—do they fit into the scripture or stories or belief system of of Buddhism in that region?
1: I understand your question. Um, <laughs> the simple answer is no. Okay, which is one of the most fascinating aspects of them, more or less, because there seems to be a Buddhist gloss and explanation for most of the Tibetan storytelling world. Um, Whether or not those Buddhist glosses were added significantly later depends on the type of story. There are certainly pre-Buddhist or non-Buddhist stories that were given a Buddhist prayer at the beginning and made Buddhist, etc., etc. But in this case, they really do fall outside of the scope of Buddhism. There are stories, for example, in the Sherpa Yeti stories where there are Nanegu or Yeti that practice Buddhism that meditate in caves or there are stories of a monk who was meditating in a cave and met and and they became friends or they taught each other each other's language or they helped each other medicinally um, one healed the other from some injury so there are times where the human players are buddhists and encounter these creatures but There is no real Buddhist explanation for nanegu. The word means wild man. And sometimes there's some kind of Buddhist shastra that does mention a a nanegu. But the meaning of the word there is more like bandit, not like wild man in the sense of sort of the Bigfoot type wild man. So no, they don't have a Buddhist explanation. In fact, there's only a few places where I think that shows up in occasional stories in some kind of a recent syncretic amalgam. But more importantly, I think what, what's going on in the area of Geltong is that since the 1950s and 1960s, in the late 1960s, the monastery in the region of Geltang, the main central monastery, was dismantled and destroyed during the early phases of the Cultural Revolution and institutionalized buddhism in the region collapsed and one of the things that has been most interesting about recent decades is that in the face of a sort of a vacuum of institutionalized religion people have begun to tell these stories more than they did four or five decades ago huh. at least according to the people with whom i work the people who i've been interviewing they say that There are a whole bunch of landscape-based, nature-based, religious practices and folklore that have been augmented and grown and returned to being popular in the face of a community that doesn't know much about Buddhism anymore. They identify as being Buddhists, but Buddhism is not vibrant in this region. And there's a certain kind of guilt and shame about that and a sort of secret, quiet lament going on. But there's also sort of a return to identity based folklore to make sure that we still know who we are in the absence of Buddhism. So in a weird way, they sort of signal the absence or the non-Buddhist world. I mean, this is a dominantly Buddhist place in general, right? And the other um, sort of fascinating dynamic is that there's an accompanying tale or set of stories about invisible villages. I mentioned this to you when we spoke a few years ago, but Sometimes the invisible village stories and the Nanegu stories overlap, not always. But the invisible story is something like this. There is a beautiful village, again, the perfect village with great pasturage and great grass for the animals and clean water, and you can hear it, but you can't see it. And you might be walking through the high forest searching for mushrooms, and you hear roosters cry and babies crying. So you know there's a village nearby, but you can't see the village. And if you're very, very lucky, you can step through the meniscus and enter into a paradisical utopian or dystopian valley. And there's the perfect village, an invisible village. And you can't live there because the Nanegu make it uninhabitable. And so these stories sometimes overlap in that exact way. And today in Villages down by the road, down by the river, there are people with the surname of that invisible village who claim to be refugees from the invisible village that they needed to leave because of the Nanegu. I've talked to these people. And, you know, what is it like to be from an invisible village? And the answers are quite fascinating. And one of the... If you dig deeper into sort of the Buddhistic understanding of... Veiled and unveiled place, there's a sense of a uh, bayu or a hidden land that is very important in the very Buddhist understandings of refuge valleys, secret revealed valleys um, that were revealed by greatly realized Buddhist masters, usually, and become sanctuaries for people fleeing war or to escape hard times. And this notion of a formerly unseeable place that gets, in a sense, opened or revealed is a very important, specifically Tibetan Buddhist and Himalayan tradition. I think this Bayul notion is way pre Buddhist and probably has deep relationships with this notion of invisibility of these zige, these invisible villages. So, pre Buddhist, non Buddhist. Interesting. The Invisible Village has been my grail quest for quite a long time now. I've spent so many days of my life wandering around high up with my friends, my research partners and buddies, trying to find these places. And we found one, finally, but it's taken us many, many years. And some pretty extreme hikes to try to find these places. And, you know, they are ruins of of villages. Um, And, of course, this has, you know, relationships it's echoic of, of the patterns of contemporary policy governmental policy today which is that every village in the region must be connected to a road so very remote villages are required to be abandoned and a new kind of crappy housing is built down by the road wow for, from those villages and so these stories very much overlap with real practices of policy today about you cannot live in a remote village that's not connected to things. But these invisible villages are also places where these sort of not immortal, but very long-lived fairy-like creatures who are human-looking lived. And similar to the non stories, these sort of flamants, these fairyish people That's a bad translation it's a bad word fairy it doesn't fit exactly here but these people will watch human villages and they'll watch what the humans do and the humans for example might cremate somebody who died and so the people in the village the invisible village will say oh That's what you're supposed to do with your dead. So they have a donkey or a dog that dies and they cremate it. But of course, that's not what you're supposed to do in the Buddhist world. And so they have committed some kind of a transgression and their village becomes visible. And at that point, they've been discovered, the the jig is up and the veil has been lifted and they sort of come down and intermix with the normal humans. And there are plenty of people who I've interviewed who say that they are half of that sort of flamo- class that type of that fairyish type creature that they
2: have sort of flamo blood is that like a family folklore or is that like individuals say that like it's family family oh. folklore wow yeah.
0: that's incredible
2: but it's fascinating yeah yeah mm-hmm.
1: so visible invisible this transgression that when you do something that you're not supposed to do often because you try to and i think this is the key i think it's because you're trying to be like the people
2: mm-hmm and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and or useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast.
0: Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents
2: climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming.
0: Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution.
2: Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur (laughs) injuries, paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases.
0: A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts spotify or wherever you get your podcasts
1: and part of this i mean if you really want to look other ways one possible valence of understanding these stories is that they're about how outsiders become part of our community how that which is different than maybe more monstrous or live a long time or our hairy big people join our people and become like us and where, where that's plausible and where it's like kinship rules, who you can marry and who you can't, like who can become part of us and who will never become part of us. And there are good scholarship that's parallel to this. By, for example, there's a guy named David Gordon White, who's a very nice human being, um, who's a scholar at University of California, Santa Barbara, who wrote a wonderful, methodologically awesome book called Myths of the Dogman, and in this book, David Gordon White compares the Indic and the Chinese classical texts, descriptions of the people who live on our periphery. And they always make them sort of dog-like, cetacephalic. So there's this notion of the other, that which is outside the civilized, is animal-like. It's wild, it's dog-like. And it happens very similarly in India as it does in China. And these stories, I think, have some some relevance to the way that that which is monstrous and on the periphery is animalized, is more like a beast, um, is not really human. So it's the edge of us and them.
0: Yeah, it's just incredible how othering is such a universal.
1: You, know, you, you said barbarian earlier, right? Yeah, like, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the Chinese worldview of what was barbaric, this term, e. Y-I-E, is often used to describe. It's actually an ethnic minority group in southwest China. And the barbarians, from their point, from the Chinese point of view, were definitely more monstrous or animal-like. I mean, look at the story of Mulan, one of the most racist movies ever made. And you look at the way the bad guys are portrayed. They have fangs and tails, right? I don't know if this is the Huns or something like that, but it's just this very monstrous dog-animal-like bestial kind of opponent of the other. Those people who are not civilized like we are. Yeah,
0: Just going to say, it's interesting you were talking about Orientalism earlier and it's just interesting how you have that paradox of people in the East being seen as being barbarians or being backward or primitive in some way, these negative associations, but at the same time you also have more positive associations and stereotypes of people in the east as being wise and spiritual
1: yeah the exotification romanticization stuff is definitely part and parcel of orientalism so there's a, a simultaneity of the demonization with the exotification and eroticization as well
2: oh yeah <laughs> i mean that's, that was an enthusiasm that was agreement sorry <laughs> it's it's highly problematic and highly colonial
1: and you know these are also you know perennial pitfalls that i have to deal with as a an american who's hanging out in southeastern Tibet trying to be hyper self-aware of, you know, uh, self-conscious of a uh, colonial gaze of, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the effect that my presence has on storytelling. These are not stories that I happened to overhear. They're usually solicited stories, right? And so they're told out of a natural performative context. And so it's very hard to extrapolate about, and you can do so through asking people, but there's there's only so much you can learn about how and when these stories might normally be told and why. So there's a constant needing to check to the degree possible. And this comes up in massively when we start adding conversations about religion. Because after all, particularly when we're removing or bracketing very clearly understood or better understood notions of religiosity, like Vajrayana Tibetan Tantric Buddhism, but instead talking about like what you might call folk religion or localized, what the Tibetans call mi religion of the people or folk religion into which these things would fall categorically, the notions of the Tibetan Fae or the Nanegu, things like this. And so this kind of folklore arguably is religious it involves um the fantastic the supernatural it falls into conversations that involve mountain spirits and spring Mm -hmm. spirits and things like this and and being able to put your family's your clan soul into a tree like a horcrux to protect it So in these conversations, this stuff comes up. So there's clearly what we might think of here in the States as a religious valence. That category of religiosity is really the product of the colonial imagination that we map onto other people who might not taxonomize their way of being in the world, their ontological worldview as being religious or not. Mm -hmm. You add Marxism in stir and the whole conversation gets really interesting when you ask people whether or not they believe in this stuff.
2: Yeah, that gets really complicated. I think we've done several stories or episodes where we talked about the idea of this in, in monster lore. It's called Zaina. It's the story about a Russian wild woman uh, in, in the region of Abkhazia. And originally it was presented as a story about a wild woman, like, a you know, like a, a Bigfoot Yeti type thing. But she was captured and abused and crossbred with locals and her grandchildren and great grandchildren are still alive today. And so genetic research uh, was done because they wanted to find out, was she a Neanderthal? What was she? And it turns out that she was someone who had uh, probably been sold into slavery from uh, sub-Saharan Africa. She was a black woman living Abkhazia as a slave who was abused. And now we only know her from monstrous folklore, which is horribly racist and, and completely obscures the real story there. And that, that has been such sort of a, a wake up call for me because as much as I enjoy monster stories, I, I try to be aware of places where, uh, and in in doing monster research, we squash all over a different yard. Like, <laughs> and I think that's what's happening here. I think it seems to me that like just this little glimpse you've given us into how the Yetis perceived locally is at odds with the idea that there is just a, a prehistoric, you know, human ancestor living there, or there's a weird bear living there, like whatever it explanation these explanations exist in defiance of the local lore. Like they, they come in to wipe away the local lore. And it feels to me like a form of, uh, if not directly uh, a kind of colonialism, it's it's at least a narrative colonialism that, that is pushing out the local matrix and establishing its own.
1: Yeah. And the local matrix can be colonialist too, right? I mean, there's certainly deep racism in this region from group to group. So, Yeah, there's all kinds of um, descriptions of the other as monstrous or barbaric or animal-like or stupid or things like this, even in this region, right? Yeah, I think that story is quite interesting. It also sort of intrigues me. Of course they went in and did genetic testing because people have this fascination of knowing whether or not there really are these wild people out there. Yep. Right. From the Bigfoot hunters to the Yeti hunters People really want to find this lost species, right? Now, interestingly, in this region of Geltang, there are such local Tibetans who very much want to find one and take a picture of it. Yeah, they're also terrified of doing so, but they are kind of cryptozoologists out there. They're they're going out there trying to find Nanegu. Not so much, but I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not trying to find one. I'm trying to collect the stories, right? But jokes show up during the storytelling, because I'm a particularly hairy person. And, um, (laughs) yeah, so, I mean, mean, they're definitely monsters um, that are like the Nanegu, but become slightly more monstrous. They're a little less human, like the Shershang Dudu. And the Shershang Dudu is the flying version of a Nanegu. And they are terrifying, and they are bad, and they eat people. There are Nanegu stories where the Nanegu will capture um, a human woman and bring her back to its cave that other people can't access because you have to be able to scale a cliff wall to get to the cave. And he imprisons her there for several years, bringing her food, and eventually they fall in love. And um, they have an offspring, They have a, chi- a child, and the child looks half human, half Nanegu. And she finally escapes the human woman, and she... She takes the animal skins that the Nanegu brought her and she makes a rope and she climbs down and she's running across a field to get home. And the Nanegu sees that she's gone, grabs the baby under its arm, climbs down the cliff and chases her. And they, they meet in the field and he beckons her to come back. And she, she says, no, I'm going home. And he says, please. And she says, no. And so the Nanegu takes the child and tears it in half and throws the human half to her and keeps the nanegu half of the child
2: wow
0: terrifying it's a sad
2: story it is a sad story yeah it's a funny
1: story people laugh when they hear this story but it's it's sad it's just sad the nanegu are not they're not evil I, we feel sorry for them when you hear the stories a lot of the time
0: so we've talked a little bit about uh whether local people believe in in these creatures or not. Could we talk a little bit about uh how the local people perceive Western cryptozoologist types? And uh so I'm assuming there are people uh who travel there who are interested in cryptozoology and no. do investigations and
1: No, not really. No, not yet.
2: Oh, really? Okay. Are they aware of how these stories have reached the West and how they're perceived over here?
1: No, not at all.
2: <laughs>
0: that, that is really interesting. I
2: wonder <laughs> what they would think of it. I, I, I really do. That's fascinating.
1: Yeah, there's a sense in, in of this in China, for sure. I mean, Sigrid Schmalzer wrote a wonderful book called The People's Peking Man, published it about a decade ago. And her scholarship is just sublime. And she writes about the Chinese fascination with Yeren and the idea of cryptozoology as well from the Chinese scholar point of view and the sort of notion under a, a Marxist academic um, scientific platform to study what's up with these stories and so that that form of cryptozoology internally in china is well known but out in the remote areas of southeastern tibet no the local people have not encountered the cryptozoological expeditions they're fascinated that i'm curious usually the elderly people will tell me these stories because they're happy to tell them because they like the stories or they've seen a non-egu and their kids aren't interested and so they anyone who's willing to listen to grandpa grandpa's going to hold forth right wow. yeah yeah <laughs> and so they're just excited to have somebody who cares and wants yeah. to know and some some of the times they're very adamant about the fact that they've met one and they no one believes them and no one wants to listen to them so if i'm out there just not passing judgment and hearing the stories they're enthused and they're excited to tell me about this stuff but yeah they're they're confused themselves about whether you know, what's out there. They kind of want to know, but they're again, they're not with rare exceptions, they're not particularly fixated on issues of whether they're real. It's more fixated on how these stories explain the local landscape. And it's all localized. So back to the Shershang Dudu. The Shershang Dudu famously is always a local story. So every valley value you'd go to in this region, some elderly storyteller will say, okay, there was only one Xershang Dudu, and it lived right there. And they'll point to the cave, the inaccessible cave high up on a mountainside. They'll say, that's where it lived. and Or they say, that jagged mountaintop over there, that's where it lived. And then they tell a story, and there are often variants of the same story wherever you hear this, that there was a boy who would plow fields and he was saddened by the fact that this flying Shershang Dudu would capture people and take them away to its lair to eat them. And so the boy decided to, to play a trick to fight back and built some kind of an explosive device out of gunpowder and a yak horn or a cow horn or a flaming log. And the Shershang Dudu would pick it up and brought it back to its home, and then the home exploded, killing the Sher-Shang-Rudu. But what's really important is people say, so that's why that mountain has a jagged top to it. You can see it right there. And then you go four valleys over, six valleys over, and someone tells you the exact same story and says, and that's why that mountain has a jagged top. So everyone owns it locally, but if a Tibetan from a different valley comes and hears the story, it's not like they, they sit there and say, no, 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 no. That actually happened over where I'm from. Instead, they'll say, yeah, 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 yeah. We have that story too. Mm. So what happens is these stories allow people to say, we share story, we are kin. There's sort of a a regional pan-Tibetan identity of saying, "Our, our dialects might be different, but we have kinship with you. We share this same story. And so the fact that we share this story makes it be like we are similar mm-hmm. so we are now in us the unique local aspects of the stories don't cause discord and in fact it brings people who also share this unique story together
0: i can understand that yeah that's so really who interesting who we are versus who
1: we are not right who they are versus who we are That's sort of what the stories seem to be more about. And the content of them doesn't matter so much as the fun of telling them. That's the other thing, is that these stories are entertaining. And there are renowned storytellers. Usually we'd roll up to a particular village or we'd hike for a few days to a particular village. And we start asking around, who are the wisdom holders of this town, of this village? You know, who can tell us stories about Nanegu? And they all point to the same house. Say The guy who lives there. Or sometimes we've been tipped off that that guy's a good storyteller already and we go there and we invite ourselves in and ask if the the guy will... It's usually a man too. There are women who know these stories but A, they don't want to tell me as a foreign guy or they say I'm not a storyteller because the tradition definitely privileges male storytellers, at least in this context. So then this person will... We're invited into the family. We're fed. Try to record when we can record without making people uncomfortable. Otherwise, I just take notes. And by the time the storytelling starts, there's 15 people in the room, and it turns into an entire evening. You know, you fill a whole notebook full of notes and arrows of who's saying what. And the kids are chiming in, and the the, you know, grandmas and cooking food for everyone in the kitchen, telling the old grandpa not to tell lies to the foreigners (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: you have the best job
1: (laughs) right it's fun and the food's very generous and it's it's a lot of fun but it's sometimes i'll catch myself trying to write down the content of the stories and then i have to sort of sit back and think that's not what's going on here it's not really about the content of the story it is to a degree and people are listening some people very intently but it's more that It's these moments of the joy of someone who still remembers something, passing it to everybody else. It's cultural transmission and storytelling. And it's therefore very much so identity creating and, in a certain kind of way, ritualistically, religion. If storytelling is ritual which I think it is.
2: Well, if it's not, it's certainly everything else is invoking like the ancient ways of hospitality. You know, <laughs> you're being, you're being provided for and entertained. It's that, oh, the that,
1: generosity has yeah. been spectacular. I am yeah. so indebted to the kindness and the friendship and yeah, it's a quite a privilege to get to do this. It's it
2: is. It's awesome. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. sure not every experience is wonderful, but it's rich and, you know, I, My friends and I, you know, some of my friends have settled into a family life that's very repetitive and some have jobs that take them places. And it's if you only do the same things over and over again, you don't get new stories. And so I love adventure and and not necessarily life threatening, but just like going out (laughs) and meeting new people and hearing new stories and and, and getting new experiences. And
0: even in this format.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, And it's just it gives a richness to existence and I, you know, it's, it's definitely. And I I think at least in the world of monsters, I've come to the conclusion that, you know, the the basic unit of monsters is not a monster. It's a story. It's
1: precisely. Yes, 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 yes. It's the stories of monsters that matter, right? Mm -hmm. It's the the human stories of the non-human. It's not that vampires are like X. It's the human stories of vampires describe the vampires as X, right? It's it's the human view of it all. Wouldn't it be nice to interview a non right?
2: I mean...
0: One of the nicer ones.
1: Yeah, I mean, what we do is we...
2: Well, you wait till nighttime and then they'll come mess with your tape recorder and interview you because they're
1: Yeah. Anthropomorphize you know, <laughs> <yeah. laughs> and psychoanalyze monsters all the time. I mean, I'm sort of a little bit done with monster theory and i respect a lot of the thinking that's gone on in the literary studies of monster theory and things like this but first of all it's very western right it's very euro-american mm-hmm. but also this notion of um that the monster is inside us sort of that it's a reflection of the self the, these kind of concepts I find are very helpful for understanding, particularly very culturally specific modes of monster storytelling. And they absolutely do not fit at all in others. So they're not universalizable. They're provocative ideas in monster theory. For example, the Nanigu, it's not that the Nanigu are in us. Yeah, the Nanigu want to be us, but it's not a reflection of us so much as one might think. The, the Nanigu are, are very specifically not. Us. That's the key thing, is that there's something else out there that's not human. And that's the important part of the content part. Is that these are those dangerous people out in the mountains? Everyone already knows that. It's that there are other things out there that are not
2: human. So this is a strange idea, but is it possible to engage in cryptozoology without being colonialist?
1: Yeah. <laughs> It's not so much that you, you, you are necessarily being colonialist, but you're necessarily being empirical.
2: Yeah, and, and materialist, I think,
1: yeah. yeah. Right, yeah, and the empirical worldview that is looking for, like, a zoological, classificatory, taxonomic descriptor of some living mammal out there, right, that worldview is often colonialist, but it doesn't have to be. I mean, there are certainly Tibetans that have that worldview, although that may be a product of, you know, a empirical colonialism. But nevertheless, it's not necessarily colonialist in its application. It it could be that it's just sort of a particularly scientific way of trying to look at things. And that doesn't really necessarily jive well with the modality of how the stories work, or the causal principles of religious efficacy, or the way the world works, which is much more magical inside the stories. It's not empirical. So the idea of trying to impose an empirical explanation on i mean we've spent a lot of this conversation and i find i'm doing it in my writing a lot too of trying to understand what these monster stories might mean yeah that is highly interpretively colonial and and empirical so instead what i'm trying to do is catch that that's a possibility it's one tool on a tool belt but there's also the local explanation it's the, the storytellers version of what these stories mean they're definitely anthropomorphizing the non I mean, it's not the non point of view, right? But it's not always empirical. So you definitely have sort of a whole more fantastic, and there's a sense that this is fantastic. There's a sense that this is the realm of story. This is something of, that's old, that these are things that our grandparents knew when the world was different, before empiricism became the way things worked. And so you find these very scholarly, elderly people who've got an iPhone and live in a very, very empirically understood modern world telling these stories with deep love of how wonderful they are. And so to sit and try to empirically understand them is like blasphemy it just sort of kills them. It's a joy kill. It kills the ambiance of the story. And if we don't understand the ambiance of the storytelling, we're not going to understand the real notion of the content of the story.
2: And not, not to be silly, but like, if, if you keep interrupting the story to say, well, there's no such thing as magic beans. Well, there's no such things as cloud giants. You know, then for, you're going to not really enjoy the story as, as, as part of it. But I mean, it, it's also a disservice to the storyteller. And you're going to lose all... The content there that may not be literally true, but may be important metaphorically, spiritually, psychologically, culturally, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 And, and I disagree. We don't with do cloud giants. We don't do that with
0: uh, movies or, or books, <laughs> but yeah, I think we're very much inclined to do that with uh, stories of monsters.
1: Yeah, Karen, I completely agree. Yeah. Um, why don't we do that? Is it because we think of storytelling when it comes to something that's like a story of a monster? Mm-hmm. Is it that? I mean, it is the fact that it is unknown that is important, right? I mean, think, for example, of like this notion of debates about the definition of religion. Some people will say the definition of religion depends on something called faith, which would mean, which of course discounts some Buddhism, but it means something like, it's important to have faith, which is belief in something for which there's no evidence. And for example, in certain you know ways of thinking of Christianity, that's super important. Like I believe it even though there's no evidence and that matters, right? That that kind of faith is super beautiful and super important to the tradition. I think similarly, when we think of these stories, we could get caught up in trying to Forget the wonder, forget the ambiance, forget the mystery, and try to know that which is never supposed to be known. So the cryptozoologist, yeah, maybe you can call it colonial to a certain degree, but it's also sort of like making the mistake of trying to get an answer to a question that was never meant to be solved. <laughs>
0: <Right>. <laughs> Nicely said.
1: <laughs> right? You go out there and you try to find the Yeti who, Like, duh, don't do that. First of all, if you meet it, it's going to eat you. So dumbass. Like, (laughs) the other thing is that that's not the point, Mm -hmm. right? It's crazy to try because you're not going to find it because the whole point of it is that you're not going to find it. It's intentionally a mystery. To try to solve that mystery kills the mystery, kills the beauty. Mm -hmm. So I think the cryptozoology thing is also a way – I mean, Blake, you've described yourself as a skeptic, right?
2: I have. I've changed that to saying I'm a pro-reality activist now. But yeah, yeah,
0: <laughs> it's not as user-friendly.
2: I mean,
1: so, <laughs> but this this notion of like a healthy skepticism or an empirical skepticism about you know cryptozoology or monster stories or you know lake monsters or whatever. Part of it is that that skepticism is sometimes. Problematic in the face of a situation where wonder is the point.
2: Yeah. If you don't mind my uh, going off on a weird side tangent, this idea comes up in my head a lot because, for one thing, people have a tendency to think that if they have a mechanical understanding of a concept, that now they understand the concept better. For example, you know, if you know that your emotions at the root of them are often caused by. Hormones and chemicals and electrochemical activity in your brain. Well, you know, now that explains why you're furious and you can hear, you know, you can't see. It doesn't really explain anything. You know, it doesn't help because I mean, like, (laughs) it doesn't make love any less. That's literally (laughs) what my point was. Exactly. You may know that that it's chemical, it's electrical. But, you know, the way that your heart lights up, which is not even a real thing, when you see someone you love or when your kids hug you or when you just have these moments of of just inexplicable joy at the most mundane aspects of being human.
1: Yeah, I have a friend named Johnny, Johnny Miller. He's a guy who studies um, core samples and climate conditions of climate change and things like this. And years ago, we were hiking in Canada. And he and a buddy of mine, we split off from me and they were walking along a trail and they got charged by a grizzly bear.
2: Wow. Oh.
0: And the grizzly
1: bear bluff charged them, like it charged them and stopped on a dime just a few feet in front of them.
0: They do that? <laughs> didn't know that.
1: Yeah, thankfully. <laughs> and, and then, you know, you kind of cough your heart up into your hand, right? And the, then the grizzly Oof. walked around them and then left. And they were sort of st- on. A, they ran up a log like three feet off the ground because what else? Can I be, right? And they were sitting there, trying to make sense of reality again. And the first thing, the first thing Johnny did is he took out a compass and started to triangulate where they were. And my other friend Larry had to sort of stop him and reach his hand out and be like, "Johnny, it's okay." you don't need to suddenly turn to science. Yeah.
0: To <laughs> find, In a time like that. Find your grounding. So again. Do, doing like, the science
2: rosary, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. It's yeah.
2: To, it's to bring
1: it back like, into something that's calculatable to make sense of the inexplicable experience.
2: Uh, that will be... Uh, uh, alert listeners will recognize the compass rose joke I just did there, too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, yeah, the compass rosary, nice one. Yeah, so there's, there's this... There's this sort of issue of if we try to give a scientific explanation for something that was never really intended to fall into the rubric of scientific explanations, not only is it a form of colonial violence to do this and uh, just a total buzzkill, but it's utterly missing the point in a weird way. It's not really doing anyone any good. It's a modal mistake. It's a modal shift.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's a categorical error, yeah. Well, and there, there, there's monsters that we know were created as hoaxes. I mean, like, they were, that was the point. They were, mm-hmm. you know, they were, gosh, golly, story, you know, just just big, you know, I don't even know what the right word is for it, but just, just nonsense stories. That used to be a good form of entertainment before we got radio and television and other stuff, right? People just telling stories, but, you know, people still go looking for them, you know? Oh, they yeah. still want to go find these things that are absolutely, obviously fake. I feel bad because they're somehow not savoring those moments there, you know? And so Some uh, people
1: call that religion, Blake.
2: Well, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Right. So people are out there looking for something that someone told them a story about once. Right. I mean,
2: it, yeah, no, it's true. It's true. It, and I think if you do that, if you, if you spend all your time looking for Noah's Ark to prove that, you know, Genesis is true, you've missed the point of Genesis, right? That's, that's not the point. The point's not to go literally go find a boat. That's not the yeah. point. So,
1: um, yeah, I, I I think that's the case. But, but let me ask you this, Ready? Wouldn't you really love to see a dragon? I know absolutely, I
2: Absolutely, absolutely. So we all want
1: to, right? That's part of the enticing aspect of the wondrous and the mysterious. It's, you know, yeah, you would miss a hundred years of life in the real world if you spend a night Dancing with elves in the forest. Right. But, 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 but if they invited you, wouldn't you say yes?
2: Oh, I, I would drink the drink. I would eat the food. <laughs> I know I would. <laughs> so,
1: I mean, that's the whole point of that story is yeah. that it is so enticing that it's hard to say no. Right. Sure. And these are embedded in the stories all the time. I mean, you, you, you put someone in a box and throw them in a river. Everyone who hears that story knows perfectly well that box is going to float down river and someone's going to open it. Mhm. That's why it's in the story. It's like saying don't look back over your shoulder or someone will turn to salt. I mean, you don't put that in the story unless that's what's going to happen. Right. The the point of these stories and the storytelling is is more about mood, I think. And I'm beginning to think that religion is more about mood and ambiance that what, you know, if religion is something along the lines of meaning making and it has something to do with mythology or story and ritual and the combination of them and belief epistemic commitment of some sort and then you try to form, find formulas that will will understand thereby what religion might be like it's you know that myth plus ritual plus epistemic religion is something or plus epistemic commitment to something like religion then the you get ritual with some kind of a active syntax will reactivate myth that ritual with syntax activates myth then you start to wonder okay if that's one functional definition of religion That's very sanitary, right? Yeah, it can be helpful. But to me, I'm beginning to get a sense when I'm working with these storytellers that it's mood. It's the occasion of the performance in a group context of storytelling and identity creation tied to the land itself, which is where religion is coming out. So it's ambiance. I think the word we're missing is this French word ambiance. It's the feeling that's happening during the storytelling that that's where the, the important essential dropping of semi-precious gemstones into the storytelling tradition of religion might be.
2: I, there's been times in my life when I've had the uh, good fortune to sit around with some people who are genuine raconteurs and could tell a story. I have a, an uncle who, and I have a cousin who's that way. And I just like, those times are so special, but you never get them. Like it was, it was like, it's so rare because if everybody gets together for a, a holiday, nobody's sitting around telling stories. They're watching a game, or they're eating, or they're doing. You know, just to get those organic moments of genuine focus and storytelling, and that you're in that circle of story, you're in there that moment, and even if you're not telling a story yourself it's such a different experience than than to read a story in the newspaper or to read a story in a in a book and it's not just the performative it's that you are well it may be to some extent it is you know it is part you're part of a small community uh, you know it's a community of five or six people but i just hmm
1: i agree with you completely i think this is why folklore is so threatening to power structures this is why it's called superstition that's interesting. Oh, you know,
2: we're really running late on time. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I keep saying interesting things. <laughs> I know. I, I,
2: I keep talking. So, this is well, just I, fascinating. I'll tell you how much
1: I enjoy these conversations with you all. I mean, it's, it was an honor to be invited back. And I had such a fun time talking with you all about dragons. And I'm happy to tell you more about Nanegu anytime or the lake bull monster or poison casters
2: or other cool things that are going on in Geltung. I can tell you about Lots of
0: them. other topics there.
2: Yeah, that, that sounds great. Yeah, please do come back.
0: But we so- wanted to uh, ask about your uh, research and what you're working on these days.
2: Right now
1: I'm working on poison casters, like these people who kind of grow demons and cast them into other people's wombs, but they can't help it they it's sort of stuck in their family and they they have to use it if they have it. And it goes from mother to daughter a lot. And it might be cancer and it might be snake naga ooh. related and it's it's super complicated and there's different explanations of course depending on who you ask which makes anything more wonderfully complex but um yeah that's my current research is
2: on poison casting oh well it we've not done a dedicated naga episode and that would that would be ooh,
1: yeah let well, me know i know i have some friends i can bring along too for, for that show
2: so yeah it, that's that would be fun yeah there's not enough giant water spirit snake stories you know, in, our, in our content. So, and I, I'm curious as no to how that said that before. Well, just, well I'm, I'm just wondering, like, yeah, I, I know a lot of times these words like Naga may have different meanings across different regions of, of you yeah. know, and so that's a tough one. And, it, and it's a very interesting monster. Uh, and it sounds like there's a lot of lore there. I'm completely unfamiliar mm-hmm. with. So
1: They're super important in this region. They have to do with leprosy. They have to do with earthquakes. They have a lot to do with um, rituals of propitiating the demons of suicide. All kinds of complicated things.
2: Well, that sounds dark and interesting, and we Mm -hmm. will definitely be begging you to come back.
0: (laughs) Absolutely,
1: yeah. Well, I am very, very just grateful Thank you for like for asking me to be part of this conversation and for caring about this kind of stuff, right? I find it intriguing beyond imagination. Actually, I find it intriguing in imagination. That's what's so wonderful about it. But, you know, wonder and imagination are what it's all about. And the fact that you want to know and ask the questions you ask just makes me happier than I could tell you.
2: Mm-hmm. So thank you. We uh-huh. appreciate it too. It's very mutual. So
0: And all of our listeners as well.
2: Yes. Yeah. yeah. That was the collective we. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. For all you listeners out there, thank you for, for listening.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: But yeah, it's always a pleasure to talk with you, Eric. You're very knowledgeable.
2: Likewise. So are you. <laughs> and c- c- congratulations again on your. Uh, I assume this is considered a promotion. That's yeah, a
0: promotion. Yeah.
2: Fantastic. Yeah, it's
0: very exciting. Yeah. Cool.
2: All right. Well, have a great evening and stay safe and healthy and uh, stay in touch.
0: Keep in touch. Yeah.
2: Will do. Again, thank you. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. You just heard an interview with Eric Mortensen about some of the lesser known folklore around the Yeti. Check out our show notes for more links to his research and related material on this topic. We'll be looking further into the Eddy very soon when we dive deep into the mysterious life of millionaire oil man Tom Slick. So stay tuned for that. Monster Talks, a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as Food with Mark Bittman, Good Job Brain, and Wild Black. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. Check out our Monster Talk merchandise at monstertalk.org forward slash store where you can find a variety of cool products to show that you're a next level monster enthusiast. We could really use some more positive reviews on the platform where you listen to this show. Positive reviews cost nothing. They let you put your unique voice about the show out there for others to see, and they raise the visibility of the show because the algorithms that control suggestions for what people might listen to are heavily weighted to favor the five-star reviewed shows. If you love what we do here, please take a moment and leave a positive review wherever you get the show. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. As always, thank you for making us a part of your listening life.
0: in a Monster House presentation.